You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just woof, a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There was all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome to The Spear, the podcast about the combat experience. I'm starting this episode with a brief note about sound quality. Due to some technical difficulties during recording, the sound quality on this episode isn't up to our usual standards. Given the importance of the episode, and the busy schedule of our guest, re-recording wasn't an option. But I think you'll agree this episode is well worth the occasional glitch and sound issue. You're listening to The Spear the podcast about the combat experience, brought to you by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I don't often get nervous before my interviews, but today certainly is an exception. We routinely have impressive guests on this show, including three-star generals and Medal of Honor recipients. But today's guest, well, he's slightly different. Today I'm honored to interview former Corporal Melvin Kaminsky, the father of one of MWI's first supporters, Max Brooks. And you've probably heard of Mel, probably by his professional name, Mel Brooks. And while that name might conjure the comedic genius behind soldiers fruitlessly combing a desert in space balls, a lecherous French king in the history of the world part one, or Mongo knocking out a horse in blazing saddles, before that, Mel Brooks was an 18-year-old soldier fighting in World War II. And today, we're going to talk to him about that experience. So, Mr. Brooks, thanks for being here. Okay, Tim, fire away. Well... The first question we like to ask is, how'd you wind up in the Army? I was going to Eastern District High School in Brooklyn, in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And a soldier came by and did a lecture and said, you, uh, you're all going into your senior year. If you want to skip your senior year and go into the Army Reserve, we will be happy happy to take you if you pass the test. I think the test was something like um, one and one. They wanted you. you. You knew that. But, you know, when they said, how much is two and two? I said, well, sideways, it's 22. But I, I, they still liked me, and they still took me in the Army Reserve. And, and that was part of the Army Specialized Training Program. Exactly. Which derisively was called All Safe Till Peace. <laughs> I didn't know that. So the ASTP program took you out of high school and sent you to the Virginia Military Institute, right? Exactly. Exactly. And what did you learn at VMI? 
Well, uh, you had to clean up what the horse left, stack it. And uh, I did I did learn something nice. I learned um, honesty and respect. The students at BMI were, were not angry because I was a, a guy from Brooklyn. They were, they were kind and generous in their friendship. And uh, generally, you know, I, I learned there was, there was a big world I never seen. When you're in Brooklyn, you don't see the Shenandoah Valley. And, you know, when you're in Virginia, you got a good shot at seeing it. And, and Virginia was beautiful, just gorgeous. And, and I learned to ride a horse. And I learned uh, to eat a cheeseburger. And there was a lot of stuff I, I learned, but and, and not in that order. Well, eating a cheeseburger is an interesting mention because as a Jewish soldier, right, that's non-kosher. You were away from your family for the first time. Right. What was your mother's reaction to you going into the army with two brothers already in the service? Yeah, as a matter of fact, she she ended up with four blue stars on a flag in her window, meaning a, a blue star meant you had a boy in the service. And she had four boys and all of them were in the service. So uh, she uh, she was pretty worried and was very happy when World War II was over. In the midst of World War II, your brother Leonard is shot down. Yes. How did you how did you learn about that? Well, we got first we got a telegram, and for a month we uh, that's all we got from the, from the army. I was still in high school, and it they said uh, your son Leonard Kaminsky, you know, is missing in action. So we we knew he was a a waste gunner engineer in a B-17. So missing in action probably meant goodbye, but we we told our mother uh, that he probably, he was quick, he was smart, he probably bailed out, and uh, well, we should get some good news any, any day that he was a prisoner of war. And lo and behold, one of those days, we got another telegram that said, your son is indeed alive in a prisoner of war in a Stalag Luft, a Stalag prison Luft air, uh, somewhere in Germany. So we were very, very happy. Did Leonard's being captured change your image of the war, bring it home in any way? Well, it scared me, you know, that, you know, that, you read about and you hear about these things can happen. When they actually happen, they scare the shit out of you. You know, my God. I said, you know, I don't know what I would do if I were a prisoner of war. But I think uh, later I found out, my brother Lenny told me that he was given information that if if they, if they the Germans uh, had any evidence that you were a Jew, they might send you to a concentration camp instead of a prisoner of war camp. So on the way down, he did bail out. He said on the way down, he ripped his, his dog tags off and threw them away. And, and when they asked him uh, his name, he spelled it with an I, which indicated Catholic, uh, Polish Catholic. So. They, they didn't ask him any more questions. 
So he shot down, you're in high school, you go to VMI, and from VMI you went to Fort Sill for boot camp. Yeah, exactly. What was, what was boot camp like after a year of learning how to ride a horse and fence and eating cheeseburgers? Yeah, right. Exactly. Well, it was, it was you know, if you didn't have to go there, I would not recommend spending a weekend there. It was cold. It was flat. It was windy. It was, but anyway, we studied, my group studied uh, uh, radio transmission or communications. And mostly it was uh, improving. I mean, just going as fast as we could with the Morse code. And we learned a little bit about being forward observers. Fort Sill is a field artillery base. And uh, everybody who's sent there has some connection with the field artillery. The only thing I really loved about the field artillery, because those cannons are very noisy. You know, they send a shudder through your body. The 105 is just a blast, but the 155 is a boom. It's it's tough. But I I I was in the radio uh, communications unit of the artillery. Mm -hmm. And uh, so far, so good. And I figured, what the hell? If I was in the communications department of the field artillery, it means I was not carrying a rifle with a bayonet up front and having to push it into a German and or save my life. It, it, it felt scared and lonely, but good that when I finally faced, if, if I had to, the enemy, I would be in a better position. Mm -hmm. Strange, funny, weird, because I was there for, I don't know, three or four months, whatever basic training is. And there's, there's stuff that scares you. You know, they're like for breakfast, sometimes they put up a sign that uh, they had a special called shit on a shingle, which, which was really not so bad. It was creamed beef on toast. And, uh, but it, it scares you when you see it on the menu. Shit on a shingle today, boys. So anyway, we, uh, I, I learned a lot. I can't explain it. It was, but it was great. It was really great. One thing I really loved about the art, being in the artillery, I didn't like the noise because the, the cannons made a lot of noise, but I did love the song. It, it was, you couldn't beat it. Even the Marines who had, they thought they had the best song. Nobody could beat over hill, over dale. So we hit the dusty trail and the caissons go rolling along. I said, well, we got the best song. I don't care about it. That's one thing. I mean, being in the artillery, I was looking for, you know, what group of Americans. And I thought we would, no matter what, we had the best song. I love that song. And I would sing it even though, even though I wasn't. I wasn't even in the army anymore. I find myself in an elevator singing over hill, over. People would look at me like, I'd say, you don't understand. You don't. Oh, by the way, when I did my first movie, the producers, I had to be examined uh, for insurance purposes. And the nurse that examined me said, did you ever have um, jaundice or yellow fever or anything when 
you know, before you were in the army? And I said, uh, no, no, never. She said, I don't understand this. Your, your eardrums, your ear passages are bright yellow, usually indicating uh, yellow jaundice or something like that. I said, oh, no, no, that's camels. She said, what do you mean? I said, camels. I was told by those people working around cannons in the field artillery that the, 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 air, the things they gave you to stick in your ears were not as good as a cigarette. And uh, so I, I used to stick camels and uh, eventually they leaked and uh, my ears, to this day, are bright, I'm very proud of them being bright yellow. But anyway, the story goes on. Finished basic training, sent back to New York for about three weeks, and then sent to the Brooklyn Navy Yard and put on a on a ship uh, that I think uh, a Liberty ship. There were Victory ships and Liberty ships. I unfortunately didn't get a Victory ship, which is a little more stable, more modern than a Liberty ship. And I was in, on a Liberty ship heading for Europe. And this was sometime near the end of February, the middle of February. And uh, the Atlantic Ocean is not kind to people who travel on it in the middle of February. It's cold. It's You go up, you go down. And, but I gave a sailor 50 bucks. One of, one of the uh, merchant marine guys, 50 bucks. He put me under a lifeboat on, on, on the deck, and gave me a tarp to cover myself with. And uh, I was freezing to death and hit by salty mist all the time, but it was better than being in the hold where there was just a, an unbelievable smell of throw up all over the place. So. It was a tough, it was a very rough trip. When you were getting on that ship and when you were crossing the Atlantic, other than being freezing, wet, and trying to avoid the smell of other men's vomit, yeah. what was going through your head? I don't know. I guess what was going through my head was, uh, I hope I can get through this war so that I can go back to being a drummer because I love playing drums. And in, in the little military units that we put together, little little groups of musicians, I was always always a drummer. And and before I went into the army, and before I went into you know in the summer, I when we weren't in school, I would I would play the borscht belt, the mountains they were called. And I was always a drummer and always a comedian, and and it came in handy later. When you landed in Europe, yes, who were you assigned to? Well, it's funny. I, I went over with a field artillery unit. And when we landed, we were all put into a big truck. But on the side of the truck, there was a sign said 1104th Engineer Combat Battalion. I said, I raised my hand like I was still in school. And I said, excuse me, Sergeant, I never... I was never in a combat battalion. I was always in a fast radio 
an entertaining battalion. And he said, you get in the truck. And that was the end of my, my trying to get out. Anyway, they, they had obviously didn't need so much artillery. And the, but they did need combat engineers who did many things. They built Bailey bridges, which are like erector sets over s streams and small rivers and uh, help move, move the army along. They, uh, af after, uh, after a house or a, a little town or whatever, or a farmhouse, was captured by the Americans. We went in as soon as possible and and defused it. We, we first thing we went into the bathroom and looked in the water cooler upstairs behind. So to tell soldiers, you can pull the chain. There's no dynamite. There's only one. Anyway, I learned a lot about the uh, about the combat engineers, and they're a great group and. Uh, I don't. I don't think I was ever really in combat, except near. I think I don't know whether it was Alsace-Lorraine or Wiesbaden or one of one of my early postings. We were sent. We were a battalion, 1104th Engineer Combat Battalion, and sometimes we were attached to a corps. I think the 23rd Corps, but most times we were attached to an army, like like the seventh. Army and, and, and side of my uh, side of my uniform on the shoulder is is the steps of the Seventh Army. You know, like a pyramid. So I think that when I I kept it because I liked it, even though I was transferred to the when I finally got home, I was transferred to uh, an entertainment unit. When you get off, when you got off the truck, what was okay. waiting for you? Uh, a little farmhouse in Normandy called Mon M O N R E P O S Mon Repos, which in France means you know, I guess like England, like American my repose, something pretty fancy. Maybe maybe a country chateau. And it was a hardworking little farmhouse called Mon Repos, misnamed because it was not fancy. But anyway, it was great because being, we were not in the field. We didn't have to build tents. We were in, in a little farmhouse and walls and, and, and fireplaces, and it was great. And uh, we were there for a couple of weeks, and we got real food for breakfast, not army food. First in France, I was taught how to defuse. It's very difficult. A teller mine. First of all, at a 45 degree angle, you take your bayonet and go through the soil. And if, if you don't hear anything, you're okay. If you hear tink, 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 you're not so okay. Actually, what we used to do was in, in each squad, we had one genius who could defuse a teller mine. It's a big flat plate. If it goes off, if you if you can hear it go off, goodbye. You know, it's a big, big explosion. And then we were taught how to believe it or not, I mean, we were taught that if you there were jars like of of pickles and jars of uh jams, jars of jelly and stuff like that. And 
He said, in some of those jars, there's dynamite. So you don't screw the top off a jar until you know what's in it. And if you're confused, put it on a fence somewhere and shoot it, you know. And sometimes they explode it. Sometimes they're absolutely right. I, re I remember the pickles. I said, oh, I, I said, look, Sergeant, get pickles, sour pickles. There's a lot of, he said, I can't see in the center. I said, it's another pickle, believe me. He said, he, he, he said okay, Kaminsky, take the jar, put it on that stone fence, put it on the stone fence. And he was from, I think, Tennessee. So he could actually hit it. You know, we were, I'm from Brooklyn, you know. I mean, no way I'm gonna, gonna, although I was an expert marksman in my uh, my early training, and he, he he hit it and it blew up and I said, thank you, Sergeant, because I was ready to eat these. So, and that, and we passed that on to anybody who was gonna, any, and anybody who was gonna either stop for a few hours or, or live there for a day or two. And we, we'd leave messages and signs, you know, so that always looking, you know, in the, in the water tank above the toilet. So that when you uh, when you think you're getting rid of, you know, your duty, you may be getting rid of the whole farmhouse. So it was pretty scary. And uh, it wasn't a bad gig. It wasn't a bad gig. Actually, we uh, I, I made up some stuff because I thought I heard German on one side of the creek and we were on the other. And we were gonna be, we were building a, like I said, an erector set kind of bridge that that a Sherman tank could cross, cross the stream on. And it's, uh, it, it took about six or eight hours to build, but it was very good. It was, it was like a permanent bridge, except it was only, only good for about, oh, 100 yards at the most, no more than that. And I thought I heard, yeah, yeah, I thought I heard a German. Anyway, they were singing, yeah, yeah. So I said, it can't be, can't be French. I mean, yeah, yeah. So I picked up a megaphone and I sang Toot, Toot, Tootsie, Goodbye. And with a great voice, Toot, Toot, Tootsie, Goodbye. Toot, Toot, Tootsie, Don't Cry. And at the end of it, I thought, oh, yeah, say good. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely some German soldiers there who, who appreciated, you know, talent. So it was in that area that a couple of days later that, that artillery, uh, I, I'm pretty sure it was, uh, it was German artillery because I, I, I knew the sound of our, I had, I had done my basic training in artillery, so I knew it wasn't. It wasn't the 155 house or whatever. So that's the closest I came to getting killed by the Germans. And I never saw gray clad figures climbing up the side of a mountain and try to pick them off. No, I was lucky that I didn't have to go through that. But the engineer battalion is moving forward in line with the troops. And are you encountering? German prisoners? Are you encountering yes, we French are. civilians? A lot of a, a lot of German prisoners, and a lot of uh, a lot of French civilians too, clogging the roads. But one time, one time I was 
we for some reason there was too much mud and we were we were marching on on foot and uh past a row of german prisoners and uh one of them said one german prisoner said to another i think he was a, an officer i'm not sure said something about Judah, and i knew oh jew talk and i walked up to him and i could speak a little German because I could speak a little Yiddish. I said, "Ich bin ein Jude." He said, uh, uh, "Turned his head away in disgust." And I, uh, and I said, "I have, ich habe eine present." I didn't know the word for it. This is something, eine token or something uh, for you. He said, "Ah," and he turned toward me, and as he did, I slapped the shit out of him. You know. I hope I knocked out some teeth. And then, uh, and I said, uh, remember the Jews, you know. Anyway, that was the only time I had direct anti-Semitic relationships, you know, or, or, or anti-Semitic, I don't mean, I guess a passer, passerby incident, you know. Anyway, I slapped the hell out of was good and i realized again that's one of the reasons that i uh, i didn't mind fighting uh, if there was combat coming up fine because i i really hated those guys i really hated hated every one of them your unit winds up crossing several rivers mm-hmm. and as a young private pfc and and eventually a corporal what was your role in getting the bridge across or providing security and you know how did you understand your role and mission well actually we uh we had two long boats with us rowboats and and they would go into the stream and pull the end of the uh the base of the bailey bridge and land land two two basic i guess platforms and drill it into the other side and then we cantilevered just through the top of it across and it landed on top of the base and it, it was it was brilliantly conceived i think by some englishman but it was the bailey bridge was a great great weapon as your unit pushes further through france and then into germany did you see german resistance increasing or decreasing decreasing i uh uh, we we heard that there were only less than a hundred miles. We were in City V spot, and uh, we uh, I didn't know how how far away they were, but uh, they said they were only a hundred miles away. So we said, "Good, let's keep." You know, I was not unhappy to be part of the unit and to be uh, occasionally facing artillery fire. Not unhappy. You once quipped that war isn't hell. War is loud, much too noisy. All those shells and bombs going off around you, never mind death, a man could lose his hearing. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> Even with the camels in your ears, was it the noise that first shocked you when facing German artillery? Yeah, well, what first shocked me was when, you know, a, a squadron of German planes had come by and, and, uh, they dropped some bombs or they, they machine gun, you know, that was scary. That was scary, just, you know, and 
nothing you could do. Well, you know, even foxholes weren't, you know, something comes from on top, from the air. And, and also, once we were in a forest and uh, they, I think they leveled their artillery to burst among the trees so that they were called tree bursts and they were very dangerous. And, you know, big logs and that could penetrate, you know, kill you would go by. And that, that was scary. But otherwise, the soldiers, you know, the infantry from the 78th, 78th Division, I think, uh, were ahead of us, and they cleaned, they cleaned them up pretty nicely. While you're in Europe and fighting, Roosevelt dies. What was yeah. the mood? Crying, crying. Grown men, grown men, soldiers, you know, from, I don't know, from 30 down to 18, just weeping. We were at a rail, railway station somewhere between France and Germany. And there was a lot of, a lot of tears, a lot of tears, a lot of open crying, and a lot of, who's Truman? Who, who is he? We just, it was the first time any of us ever heard the words. We didn't know who was vice president. We didn't pay attention to it then, you know. I mean, we were just lucky to learn the name of our first sergeant so he wouldn't smack us. It was, it was very depressing, very sad. Because, damn it, he, I said another month and it'll all be over. And he couldn't, couldn't last. You mentioned the first sergeant. Mm -hmm. And you're an 18-year-old private or PFC. What sort of interactions did you have with your NCOs and with your, your lieutenants or your captains? I remember the first sergeant was, was you know, yeah, you had to call him sergeant. I think I remember that. And I think I called him sir just automatically because he was superior. He said, uh, it's not sir. It's never a sir. We're not officers. We're enlisted men like you. We're, yeah, okay. So the next time I ran into him, I said, Your Highness. I thought, you know, I, I worked on it. He burst into laughter, so I was okay. Your Highness, I, I can't get the top of this bottle, you know. Whatever. The combat engineers are a great group because they risk their lives every day. You know, they in order to get to one one place from another, you had to walk it. You had to really, you couldn't ride it because then you couldn't tell if it was dangerous or not. You had to walk it because if you walked it, you could tell the difference between crinkly ground, firm ground, and suspicious ground, you know? So that was that was pretty scary. Or walking from one place like around a farmhouse or around, around some, you know, schoolhouses, some billets, you know, we were very careful because there were plenty of explosions and, and, and they, they lost a lot of men. In early May, the war comes to an end. Did you expect it to end? I did not. And, uh, but Richard Goldman, who was my buddy, he, he was transferred with me all the way from the field artillery to the combat engineers to working on Bailey Bridges together and vainly, vainly shooting at the sky when a German German planes would come by. He said, it was, I think it was May 7th. 
He said, I've heard word that the war is going to be over tomorrow. He said, so I've set up a nice little place for us to, uh, I didn't know what he's talking about, to celebrate, to, you know. Anyway, <laughs> I, he took, we, were in, we were in a little German town called Baumholder, B-A-U-M-H-O-L-D-E-R. May have been some umlauts, umlauts over there. And he took me down to the cellar of the schoolhouse, and there were two cots that he had arranged, and there was a bottle of French white wine. And uh, he said, we're going to spend tonight and tomorrow all day and all night here. So we got it. I said, why? How? Why? Why? He said, because when the, the army finds out that the war is over, they'll fire their weapons in the air. They'll just, yay, hooray. He says, they, they often do that. I said, yeah, I've seen that in, in movies. And I said, but we're not going to, oh, they will, they will, he said, even our trained men. And, they, and uh, so we, we stayed in that cellar for, I don't know, 20 hours or so, till it was, till it was May 9th, and then we came up. And sure enough, there were more spent cartridges than they had fired during the entire war. <laughs> All lying at our feet and stuff. I said, you're right. And we heard them, we heard them, pop, 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 you know, never stopped. Didn't know which were the Germans. I said, it can't be the Germans, they're surrendering, you know. He says, well, we met no chances, you know. It turned out that he was right about them. Shooting many bullets up, knowing, not knowing that they, they would be coming down again. So anyway, that, that was it. Was great, and it was sad because there's there was a kind of tension, you know, and and a good feeling about being being on the right side and winning and winning, and then once it was over, and you didn't have to risk your life anymore or or. There was a, kind of an empty space invaded your system, and you were you were half depressed and half elated. It's a very strange feeling that we won the war. We won the war. Now what do we do? You know that kind of. It was very. A lot of soldiers felt the same way. We all felt the same way that that uh, we had had a good job. And we were winning. We were doing a good job with our good job. And unfortunately, um, unfortunately, uh, job was over. You're, you're unemployed. You, uh, there are a couple of things that are strange that I missed. One was, once I was a civilian, I was beset with the problem of having to choose what to wear. In the army, that's it. You know, the, that khaki thing over there, you put that on, you put those boots on, and that, and then, you know, and you you, you you can eat out of out of the lining of your helmet. You could scrape it off, you scrape it out and eat out. And you, was, you, you knew it was safe and good, and, but it was all scared, you know, all scary in a, in a way. It, it just, and then 
where to go. And then, and then you didn't even have the bugles to tell you what to do. To, <laughs> you know, like when, when flag raising or flag lowering or assembly, that kind of stuff. And, and, and the bugles helped a lot, you know, okay, it's, you know, it's fine. You don't have to remember what to do because the bugles will tell you what to do. There were no, there were no bugles. There were, there were, you know, horns. You know, taxi, taxi horns, and it was all, all different. I couldn't fall asleep for, for weeks. For weeks, I couldn't fall asleep because they, they, they weren't. You know, I didn't hear taps. I, I just. I was just discombobulated, really. Didn't know what to do. And I still, thank God, had the uniform. I wasn't, I wasn't out of the army, so. But, uh, but we, we didn't have, we didn't have the bugles to assemble us. And it was strange. It was strange. And in the end, I sat down had a set of drums and I was home again. I, I knew I could. I knew I could survive because as long as there were drums, I could do it. You know. But it was a, it was a mini mini breakdown. You know, just winning the war was a mini breakdown. Before you get home and you get out, you wind up entertaining troops. You wind up encountering displaced people refugees yes absolutely i mixed i mixed german uh musicians oh there was a a group of soldiers came by and uh they said anybody here can sing or dance or sing dance play an instrument or and i they, I, I, had, I had my hand up and so what do you do i said all oh, everything you mentioned and they said okay I sang, you must have been a beautiful baby. I just sang and I danced and I, the captain of this, this entertainment group asked if he could borrow me. And so my major who was in charge of our, our battalion said, okay. So he, so I, I kind of was on the road with them. And finally I took over, that's what, when I became an acting corporal, they wouldn't even give you your stripe. You had, to, you had to act like a corporal. So I was an acting corporal. And I put together groups and I put together shows and I went to different places like in Cologne and 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 got, got whiskey and beer for entertainment for clubs. And I really enjoyed my life. I was really, I was back in show business then. It was great. At the same time you're doing this, though, you're also encountering these refugees, correct? Yes, yeah. I didn't run into too many Jews. When I did, I put them together and fed them whatever food I could, you know. They were in shock. Many of the Jews I met, they had lost people or they missed being beheaded by a minute, yeah, whatever, who knows. But they were, they were lost souls. And uh, except, let me tell you, except for the kids, the little kids always laughed no matter what. They didn't know what was going on and they enjoyed it. They enjoyed 
what, whatever was going on, they enjoyed. The, uh, the adults, not so much. Yeah, I'm talking about Jews now, because they're in it too. Well, that was a good part. That was a good part of the war for me. The, I, uh, at one point, I think I, I, I got von Rundstedt's, he had two cars. I think I got one of those cars and I got a German fiddle player Helga is her name, and she was a she could play beautiful violin, and and she was my driver. And I'd say, Helga, pull over, Brahms lullaby, and she she'd play beautifully, played it. So I knew, and she knew a lot of German entertainers. So she put me in touch with one, and they put me in touch with another. And I I did. I, I there was one point where one of the generals, I forget who was was unhappy with mixing German, you know, uh, German entertainers and, and, and American. And I said, well, singers and dancers and actors, and we're a special breed. And, you know, we, we kind of, we kind of like each other. So I, I just, you know, I, I kept hiring. He said, don't hire any German. And I didn't pay attention to him. I hired plenty of German uh, entertainers, especially musicians. You weren't sure. You know how many American, you know, so you, you you got six American musicians, but they all play trumpet. So somebody had to do a saxophone, and somebody had to do a bass, and so you know you, you needed a teacher. Process of interacting with civilians and interacting with American GIs as an entertainer help you process the war. Yes, it did. It did. It helped me. Uh, it helped me come down to earth, to reality. Because till then, you know, there was always that lingering feeling that you never know when, when, when a bomb or, or when a, an artillery shell was going to just wipe you and your unit out. You, know? you never knew. It didn't happen. But finally, every day, getting a show ready and doing a show, that went away. I, I didn't look up at the sky anymore to see if bombers were coming. You know? And I didn't cock my head to listen for the whistle of an artillery shell. I didn't, uh, or I didn't watch so carefully with the crinkled ground so I wouldn't be stepping on a moment. Brought me back to earth again. Mr. Brooks, or should I say Corporal Kaminsky, thanks for your time today and a chance to hear your history of the World War, part two. Okay, Tim, it was a pleasure, it was easy. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.